We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword and Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1974's Black Christmas, written by A. Roy Moore and directed by Bob Clark. Here's a clip. That was a clip from 1974's Black Christmas, directed by the same guy who uh, made another famous Christmas movie, Bob Clark. We can maybe get a little into that a little bit later. Uh, but joining me to discuss this, as usual, is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, your skin's on too tight. One of the best taglines ever. <laughs> I have not told you what I think of this movie. This is my first time seeing this movie. So uh, we'll get into that. Um, you have no idea what I'm about to say about this movie, Rick. But before we launch into that, we also have a special guest, guest with us today, Keir Seward, uh, filmmaker and photographer. Hey, yeah, I uh, rewatched this last night while wrapping, wrapping uh, Christmas presents, and I was filled with holiday cheer. <laughs> How could you not be, right? Um, all right, so... I chose this movie, even though I'd never seen it before, because I wanted to see it. I've heard about it enough, and um, I figured it was about time, you know, the or the early origins of the slasher film. And we've done a couple of slashes on this, though. Not Have we? Been, yeah, we've done a couple of them. We haven't really uh, gone too heavy into the genre yet. Um, but yeah, I wanted to check it out. And I got to tell you, this movie genuinely unnerved me. I live alone, <laughs> and I was checking closets afterwards, and I'm not kidding, by the way. I watched this late at night 
And yeah, it, it genuinely unnerved me in a way that that horror movies don't. I was shocked. This is about this is this would be my description. It has been my description to people who haven't seen this movie. This is about as high class of B movie as you can possibly get. Absolutely, this is like the best kind of B movie where it's made with so much craft and and skill. There's not a lot there. It's not saying a whole lot, so I'm still calling it a B movie. It is essentially a B movie script, just elevated by by every other aspect of the production. The original screenplay was a straight up 100% B movie. Bob Clark actually rewrote Roy Moore's original screenplay. So if you read the original screenplay, it's completely different. The thing that people don't talk about when they talk about Black Christmas, the original 1974 classic by the great Bob Clark is the sound design. And I think that is why it unnerved you. It's that at the point of view shots. I, I will say the, the POV that's in this movie is so effectively done. And it's not always done well in horror movies, but that that as well. But sound sound as well, yeah. But I think the sound design is just so good. Uh, and it's not just the creepy voice. I mean, the voice that we hear whenever Billy makes a phone call, I mean, it it's so it's so unnerving that I remember when I first watched this movie when I was younger, I actually turned down the volume because I, I thought my mom, who wasn't even watching a movie, she was like in the kitchen or something, but I thought that she would, like I was worried for her safety. Like I figured that she would just freak out just hearing the sound of this movie. I saw this movie when I was really young, when I was a kid. I, I, you know, I grew up in Montreal. It's, it's filmed in Toronto. It's a famous Canadian film. So here in Canada, like most people I know, like my friends and I, we all knew of Black Christmas before it became like a big, huge cult hit later in, in life when it got released in DVD. But it's not just the sound of Billy. It's just the everyday sounds you hear. Like it feels like it feels alive. The movie feels alive. Like it's the dogs howling outdoors. It's the kids playing hockey. It's someone walking by and you hear the footsteps on the snow. It's the little noises in the house. There's something so amazing about the sound design. And I think that is why, for me personally, it always gets under my skin. Uh, Kira, before we get into your opinions, what uh, what is your history with this movie? Um, well, you know, Black Christmas is kind of an interesting one because it's one of those movies that I mostly actually found out about because of the remake. Um, and... Uh, the remake kind of came out at a point where I was very really starting to get into horror, but I kind of always dismissed slasher films. And then um, when I went back, I watched like so many slasher films, but I had this kind of strange thing where Black Christmas, I always thought of it as, oh, this kind of like cheap, early, shitty one. Um, and it took me so long to watch it. And then when I finally saw it, um, it was like this case of, I think I was just kind of blown away by it. And strangely enough, I only saw it like five years ago, but I've watched it like something like six or seven times since then. I've actually, funnily enough, this was the second time I watched it this year because um, uh, I was doing a whole bunch of research for a project where I basically just watched nothing but slasher films for about two weeks. Um, and I think what the interesting thing about what you're saying is I, I actually think the really undervalued element of this film is that I think the characters are so well drawn and they feel so lived in and they feel so likable. And I actually think that ups the fear factor and the eeriness because they're not just hollow archetypes, they're very likable. And that's what kind of makes you really worry for them. But yeah, I, I, funnily enough, it's not a movie I watch at Christmas much, but I do just, <laughs> it is a movie that I just return to because I think, as you said, the craft in it is actually really exceptional and it's just really worth watching. I usually watch Black Christmas on Halloween, and I usually watch it back-to-back -back with John Carpenter's Halloween. I've seen the movie 
way too many times to actually keep count at this point, right? But I totally agree. I mean, the characters are amazing. And I think, yes, it has a good screenplay, but I think it's the cast that makes each character work. You used the word class, Patrick, and I think that's a, a really interesting word to use when you're discussing and reviewing a slasher film, especially a slasher film from 1974, which is, you know, let's face it, low budget that not many people had seen, except unless you live in Canada, because there's a huge box office sensation in Canada, but in the States, you guys, for whatever reason, changed the, the title of the movie, and so it completely flopped at the box office. But I, I totally agree. I think it's a, I hate to use this word, but a mature slasher film. Um, everything from the characters to the writing to the cinematography to the way it's shot. And, I mean, the fact that they made this movie in such a low budget with, with such a small crew, and you talk about like, the camera work, they do some pretty amazing things with the camera, which nowadays in 2020 we would take for granted. But for example, the, the final shot, right? The final shot, the camera has to, where the cameraman has to walk through the entire house, which is basically the main set of the film, right? But back then, to have your cameraman do a camera shot like that, that hovers around the entire house, it might have taken them like five days just to light the set. I'm watching that shot, and I'm thinking 1974, low-budget film, they're shooting on film stock, maybe, I don't know, 35mm, I'm not entirely sure, and it must have taken them forever to actually just light up the set, and it looks fantastic. They well, actually invented a whole rig just for those POV shots, which is really cool. So it's like when you see them like climbing up the side of the house at the beginning of it, I mean, which is which is funny again because then you know four years later people think of that opening shot of that opening bit in Halloween with the POV shots. That like there's so many things about the slasher genre that this is already doing like well before we even think of the slasher genre as a thing. And again, like it's just it's incredibly inventive in terms of what it's doing visually. Peeping Tom did it like you know 40 years earlier, but the the difference here is that the cinematographer Reginald H. Morris actually decided on set at the last minute to actually climb the house right like they were just going to do very simple pov shots but he took it to a whole new level and that really works by the way that first shot is what got me sucked into the movie climbing the lattice was the shot that made me think like okay wait a second this is going to be a little bit better than most slasher flicks but as as far as those go the pov shots do a lot i mean obviously they can make you, you know, it seem creepier because somebody's watching the character that you like. But it also does a great job of setting up the interior of the house. It's a really great way of having a camera walk through the house and be, have it be natural. And you're learning the lay of the land that way, too. So I felt like I really knew that house. I knew where every character was, was going. And I think in a slasher film, that's extremely important to understand where the exits are, where everybody is, how hard it would be to get away, how the killer is sneaking around. Uh, all that stuff to me is, is very important. And this movie does that really well. And I think the POV shots are a big part of that because you can see him descending down. You know, he's up in the attic. He descends down that little ladder. He's up at the top of the stairs watching people on the phone. Now I know where the phone is, you know, and it's not just it's not just a room within this house that every now and again they cut to. I actually can understand where it is in relation to everything else and why. And then at the very end, when you get into you know the big reveal that the calls are coming from inside the house and Jess is standing at that phone, I know exactly what's at stake and where she has to go, where the killer would be, and how easy it would be for her to get out the door. Well, and it puts us in the perspective of the killer. So nobody really wants to see what a killer sees or think like a killer, but 
we're sort of forced to be Billy, right? We are him. Not every scene, but some of the, we see like a good portion of a lot of the scenes, a lot of the characters from Billy's perspective, from his point of view, even if it's from a far shot. And that's kind of unnerving. The, the thing is, for anyone who doesn't know, so John Carpenter was a huge fan of Black Christmas. And he had a discussion with Bob Clark and he asked him if he was going to make a sequel. And Bob Clark said, no, I have no intention of making a sequel. I do not want to make any horror films anymore. So John Carpenter took the idea that he pitched him. Like he actually pitched him what I would do if I made a sequel, even though I'm not going to make a sequel. And his idea became Halloween, which was released, I believe, four years later. So if not for Black Christmas, John Carpenter would have never made Halloween. So... For me, Black Christmas is one of the most important and most influential horror films ever made. Even if Psycho and Peeping Tom and a few more movies came before it, Black Christmas is the movie that gave John Carpenter the inspiration to make Halloween, which is, I think, the most popular slasher film ever made. And it really put the slasher genre on the map. Like, after Halloween horror films were never the same because everybody wanted to make slasher films and if not for halloween if not for black christmas we wouldn't get friday the 13th and nightmare on elm street and so on and so forth well i think it's also really interesting when you look at black christmas as well how already fully formed so much of the structure of what we think of as because slasher films tend to have a very defined structure in terms of how they work and so even the way that the characters are killed off and then um, the way that the the final girl has to kind of like traverse the space to see and and discovers all the bodies and it just kind of feels actually at that point that this kind of defines what the slasher genre is because as much as obviously psycho peeping tom they come beforehand they're still kind of structurally quite different from what we think of as the more what became the 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 what we really saw in the 80s take off as the genre now you 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 use the word final girl is she a final girl in my eyes she never made it out alive so here's the thing. So the, the ending is left ambiguous. We don't know. But the thing is, if you watch the movie carefully, every time Billy makes a phone call, he only makes the phone call after he's killed somebody. And she's the only person left in the house. And but the phone rings. Could, and the phone rings at the end. Our other slasher films where final girls are killed at the very last minute. I mean, even like the, the final girl in Friday the 13th, she actually dies at the beginning of Friday the 13th part two. So it's kind of like, so it, it kind of depends. I think you could still classify her as a, she definitely occupies that status, but I get what you mean. It's just because when usually people say final girl, they, they think that she is the one that made it out alive. And also just quickly to break the rules that Randy put in place in the movie Scream, she's not a virgin. She actually has sex because she's pregnant. <laughs> That's what I, I think is so great, too. Bob Clark puts this really compelling little melodrama in the middle of it. And Keir Lee is fucking creepy and giving it and really messing things up for people called Keir. Um, and <laughs> and I just think um, and I, I just think that's what's really interesting about this movie is there's this real attention to trying to make these quite dynamic and thoughtful characters in the middle of it. And so I'm really engrossed in what's going on with Olivia Hussey, and especially every time she says pizza in that kind of like really sort of <laughs> weird way. And and I think, and I, and I, I, as much as I love slasher films, it is that thing of like so often you are kind of waiting. I'm watching The Burning 
And I'm not that involved in the interpersonal dynamics of what's going on with the characters, because really it's just teenagers deciding, do I want to bang this person or not? And, um, and, but here they have genuine stakes to what's going on in their lives. And I just think that's what's so compelling about it as a film. It also gives you an, a very, very plausible alternative to the killer, to who Billy is. Because Peter seems like there were times where I was flip-flopping back and forth. At first I thought, nah, it's too easy. They're not going to make him the, the psycho. But then he kind of seems like a psycho. And maybe like he could be a killer. And he's just coincidentally around quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and so then I kind of flipped like, really? Are they actually going to do this? It's possible. Um, but it, yeah, it, it gives you at least something to throw you off and anytime a slasher movie or any horror movie can can unsettle you uh shake you kind of free from you know movie tropes then it's doing its job because it's keeping you on the on the edge of your seat on your toes and well, which it was, one, it, this one does can i can i ask you guys a question because i'm curious about something because i was i was thinking about this because obviously that uh really remake in name only about a year ago came out that was obviously a very uh it got a lot of attention for being a very you know having big sort of feminist message but i was kind of interested would you classify this black christmas as being a, a a feminist film because it's it's well it is it is we we don't even need to have this argument because the filmmakers themselves say it is like that's what it is it's 100 percent clear it's a feminist film yes like it is interesting that the character between peter and um, and Jess, they do sort of like reverse things by Hollywood standards at the time in the 70s where Peter is the one who wants to have the baby. She doesn't want to have the baby. Jess wants to pursue her career and so on and so forth. But it's 100% a feminist film, guaranteed. I haven't seen the remake, though. Well, they're all in control, and that that's why. They're yeah. all in control of their lives, and they all have their own ideas of what they want to do with their lives. And I think that's the ultimate of what you can do with, with any characters, any good character, things like that. And so these are all good, strong characters. And, and let's not forget that Jess actually goes back into the house and gets the uh, the poker stick. Is that what you call it for the fireplace? And she yeah. goes back to defend her friends. Like, she is a heroine at the end of the film. Now, I'm poking fun at the movie. I personally think that she doesn't survive but people would like to think that jess survives because they look at her as the hero uh which makes sense i'm just saying that when the movie ends the phone does ring and billy only yeah. makes the phone call after he kills someone but 100 it's a feminist film and it's also it's not just because the characters at that time in 1974 were very open about their sexuality about sex i mean barb is by far my favorite character she's played by the wonderful margot kidder long before she ever became lois lane She's fucking killer. I love her. She's incredible. Her character is fantastic. And I love her dialogue. But, you know, like, like the thing about this movie, it's like the men in this movie, apart from maybe John Saxon's character, they're all kind of dorks and, and just <laughs> messing up. Like, they're not exactly heroic at all. And I don't know if you know this, but John Saxon was actually hired last minute on the day they started filming. And if not for hiring him, like they basically had to recast the role. And if they didn't get John Saxon, who originally was offered a part and then turned down, but was called back later to last minute, the movie would have been completely canceled. So you got to give him props for actually getting on an airplane at the very last minute and flying to Toronto to film this movie. I think they needed that character uh, just so the ending could work properly. If you well, didn't have at least a decently intelligent detective, it well, would have been really hard to get where you're going. I just kind of love that final bit, too, where Olivia Hussey's in the bed and they think everything's fine. And they're all like all the men from the film are kind of gathered around. And it's kind of this thing of like, 
well, I guess we solved it. Everything's fixed now. And they all just leave, basically leaving her to the mercy, like completely unaware that the dude is still in the attic. And it's just like, I don't know. Again, it's like there's something kind of interesting going on in the commentary there of these just really kind of ineffectual men who managed to do nothing. The one person who's managed to actually like stave off Billy is still kind of like just left in the house with him. And sedated. I, I was going to ask you guys. So the one thing, that, the one problem that I have, and we'll get to this later on the podcast, though, is well, what do you think of that ending? We should, we should, we should reserve this for the end of the podcast. We're just should gonna we? repeat ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Um. So Patrick, have you seen When a Stranger Calls? Yes. Okay, because I love that movie, and that movie, like this movie, is inspired by the urban legend, the babysitter and the man upstairs. But the opening 20 minutes of A Stranger Calls is unbelievable, which came out in 1979, I believe. But it's the same sort of premise where the killer is inside the home. Um, I saw Black Christmas first, and what blew me away about the movie, because you know when you see movies when you're younger, like I didn't pick up on the whole feminist thing i didn't pick up on like the word fellatio like i was too young to even understand what that that meant you know so a lot of the jokes that barb would say just went over my head but i remember when i was a kid i freaked me out that the killer was in the house like i like you know like patrick you're talking about how unnerving it was for you watching this movie even in 2020 and having to check your closets and everything imagine watching it as a kid (laughs) you know i'm sure oh my god (laughs) And that, that whole, like, hiding around the house, that that's the scariest element to it. Because it, it goes against... The home invasion movies are always very popular and, and can be very scary. But this one where this guy might be hiding there for days, not just overnight. This, this movie doesn't take place over just one night and this guy goes on a killing spree. It's somebody creeping around your house managing to hide there for days. It's an invasion of privacy. It's, it's incredibly creepy. A lot of people actually argue that Black Christmas is not technically a slasher film. I disagree. I believe Bob Clark himself says it's not a slasher film because for whatever reason, people think slasher film means that the, that there's a knife or a blade used and it slashes the victims. And in this film, there's only really one sharp object that we see actually penetrate a victim, right? Which is Barb. But I still think it's a slasher film. You don't necessarily need a blade. Like, you don't need Michael Myers running around with this big, huge knife slashing people in order for... Yeah, Jason Voorhees kills people in all sorts of different ways. It's not always, like, he doesn't even have the machete uh, for, you know, at least... I can't remember which movie he gets the machete in, but it takes, I think, until at least three or four before he has the machete. And it's like he's always... It's, you know, Freddy Krueger kills people in all sorts of different ways. So I think that's a really, really simplistic reading of what the um of what uh, the slasher film genre is totally agree look at texas chainsaw massacre oh yeah it's a slasher film i think that's the interesting thing too like even when you go into the slasher genre and you start like there is a kind of definable structure to everything but you still have a lot of like weird variation in it like even like you look at something like april fool's day do you class because of the ending do you technically classify that as a slasher film well yeah it is because it still has the structure it still has the the all the elements you want it's just a slight variation and a weird tweak on it right now we can say that we could argue as to what the first slasher film is, but this is yeah. the first horror film based on an actual holiday. Yeah, no, no, no definitely. So the first, ho- yeah, no, no, absolutely. And was this, though, this film was also based on actual, some real life murders, wasn't it? No, it's based on the urban legend. Um, okay. They did actually, the, the screenwriter did say that he was inspired by several real murders, um, including, I think, one of the Ted Bundy murders where he. Um, That's killed right, some where he's. 
Yeah, he would sneak into people's house. He snuck into a sorority or something like that. So wait, that. you're and talking uh, about the screenplay writer. Yeah, but that's where Bob Clark changed the screenplay. He completely rewrote the screenplay because he did not want the killer to be what, whatever famous murder was based on. They, they were inspired by real-life murders, but I don't know that the story was I mean, was when I was doing my that. research, I, I it lists a couple of different ones. There was also one, I believe, in Montreal. Um but I can't remember. I, I can't remember the details of it. I just know that there have been several. You know, it's one of those things. You know, I think it, it depending on which source you are, it changes which murder was the inspiration. But I think there were. I think the main one. I think you're right. Is definitely the urban legend of uh, the babysitter and the man upstairs. But I definitely think there were a few kind of real life uh, stories that did also go into that a little bit as well. So I have one more question for both of you guys, since you've seen this movie more than I have. And that is, uh, what what is going on with Billy? Okay, so we are not given much information about Billy. All we know is he makes phone calls, he creeps around the house, we usually see his, his point of view. We only see one shot of his face, but it's he's like in the shadows. But it's clear, and I believe, and I don't know if it was Bob Clark who said this, or the original screenplay writer, but essentially Billy was a troubled kid who was sexually abused and abused his sister. So when he makes the phone calls, he speaks in four voices. His voice, his sister's voice, the mom and the dad, and his sister is Agnes. So there was sort of like a backstory when they were filming the movie that this killer has a backstory, and his backstory is he was a troubled kid who suffered abuse and also was abusive to his sister. They they, they imagined the backstory, but... As far as the movie is concerned, when it ends, nobody really ever knows that this dude is the person who... who I mean, they don't even discover the bodies in the attic, for crying out loud. I know, I know. <laughs> even though one is right next to the window and you can see it from the outside. I mean, we'll get to the end. But, um... Well, so, it's it, also... It's actually... I will say, too, I've actually have seen uh, both remakes. Um, I mean, the second one I almost don't think of as a remake because it just really doesn't have anything to do with the original Black Christmas other than the title. But... The first one in 2006 was, and that is quietly one of the most batshit crazy remakes anyone has ever made because it is incredibly, surprisingly brutal and really obsessed with eye damage. But um, yeah, that has a really weird backstory it gives him about being a guy with jaundice who was like shut in the attic by his mother who didn't approve of him, who also molested him. And then he had a, sis he had a, a sister daughter with his mother who is Agnes, who also lives in the attic and is actually the one who's killing the co-eds, it is strangely overcomplicated, which is one of the things I don't like about it. Because I do think that's the beauty of Billy, is that you don't know that much about him. He is this weird conundrum and mystery. And I like the fact that even by the end of it, he is still this kind of strange, faceless presence in the attic, which I, you know, I, I think is, and I, and I love, I, I, I always really just like that final shot or well, really all the shots of um, Claire when she's been, after she's been killed with the plastic. And I think just like, that is what is the best about Billy is he is a presence more than he is a character. Mm -hmm. Well, m much like the original Michael Myers in the original film, he's, he's described as a shadow in the actual screenplay. It leaves a lot to the imagination, like we fill in the blank. So why does he go to this specific house that he and his family live in his house in the past? Like, why is he killing these girls? You know what I mean? But I like the idea of leaving a bit to the viewer's imagination to fill in the blanks. Because 
at the end of the day, we don't really need to know who the killer is. We don't really like, like you know, one of the flaws, the only flaw to Psycho, in my in my opinion, is the ending when they explain everything. But they had to do it back in 1960, right? Uh, I like Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, but I'm not a fan of Halloween 1 because I just did not need the whole entire backstory for Michael Myers. Well, there's something I think sometimes, too, that just cheapens it. Because I think about, right, how... I think the thing that Black Christmas really sort of taps into is my fear as a child of like that something lived under my bed and that if I like had a, a hand that went out, something would grab it. And it, it's not a it's not a logical fear, because why would something be under your bed in the same way of why would a strange man be living in your attic? But it's it's like a fear that doesn't make sense. It's beyond kind of rationality. And I think that's why I think that's what Billy taps into that fear beyond just simply a normal human being. But this malevolent presence well it's also a primal fear of being hunted i, I oh, think yeah. that that's the other thing that we're always scared of what awaits in the shadows because you know early man was hunted probably by by animals and uh there's always that you're always on the lookout for what might be out to get you and having a backstory makes it that completely alleviates the danger because then you don't have to put yourself in that scenario. You can always say, well, I don't know anybody like that or I haven't made any enemies like that. But when it's a nameless, shapeless, faceless presence, then it could be after any of us. And then we all sort of have that instinct inside that you don't want to be hunted. Also, people just don't like not knowing like people want everything explained. And so when you do explain, in this case, the backstory of a killer, it takes away a bit of the edge. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, so I think I said this on a previous podcast where I still like Halloween better. And it's not, it's not because I think Halloween is a better film. Although I do think there's aspects of Halloween that make it better. I just kind of feel that I think I've seen this movie too many times and it's not a fun movie to watch. It, it, it really does creep me out. And as much as I love it and enjoy it, enjoy the performances, it's, it's a movie that um i don't know it's it's hard to explain i i don't know if you if you if you feel that way patrick but like seeing it for the first time like do you want to revisit this movie anytime soon not really i would say halloween is a better movie but this is a scarier movie that that's the way i would describe it i honestly think that this one this one scared me more than halloween ever did i think i think as as a guy who has watched it a fair amount i think like i think what honestly i return to a lot is the craft and i think the craft is what i really appreciated and actually the other thing is i just really appreciate the humor like i think i think miss mac is a great character i love her i'm always upset when she gets like taken out with the big hook um and just like the scene even of when like claire's dad comes and she's like running around the room trying to like hide all like this other stuff and again that to me is like the the Bob Clark touch of it, where I, I I think of how this film could have been in the hands of a lesser director, and actually like you, it's a real case to me of watching a filmmaker with this really idiosyncratic um, energy really bring something and elevate the material in a really interesting fashion. Yeah, and if I did watch it again, that's what it would be for. I'd be studying certain characters a little bit more closely, um, just to sort of see what Bob Clark was doing that made it so effective the first time around that I saw it. So I can see myself watching it, but you're right. It, well, first of all, the movie's more of a downer than Halloween is. Like, oh, if, so that right off the bat, you think like, okay, am I in the mood to watch a downer movie tonight? Um, it deals with heavier subjects. Halloween's pretty light and fluffy, other than you know the serial killer part. But uh, it's it's they're also John Carpenter has a completely different style, and it's a style that a visual style that I really like and, and just automatically you know warm to. 
Bob Clark has a, a different kind of style that's not nearly as engrossing for me, but it, it's just that he does everything else so well, um, at least in this movie. And I do think <laughs> I it's got some it. great kills, though. Like the, the Margot Kidder unicorn statue kill is, I, I think, up there with some of my favorite uh, slasher film kills. And I also I, I love the uh, how, the the, uh, the bit where he kills Claire with the plastic, the hook on uh, Miss Mac. You know, there's a, a bunch of really creative stuff here, and I, I I think that's the thing too, is I think I think it's interesting because for me I like Halloween, but I love John Carpenter. He's one of my favorite directors, and The Thing is one of my top three favorite uh, films of all time. Not even just horror films. So it's like there's so many things that I'll return to in the John Carpenter filmography before. I'll return to that. But to me, I guess, it's that thing of like, Black Christmas to me is the is the main representation of what I like in Bob Clark's work. Cause I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not a big Christmas story guy. Um, you know, so I mean, I think, I think that's, you know, you just, yeah. I actually like, <laughs> I actually like Porky's. I, I rewatched Porky's two years ago. I was surprised it's actually not as bad as you think it's gonna be i guess that sounds like a really damning um you know damning but i i actually it surprised me i That's had a black christmas though it yeah, seems yeah. like it's, when you look at it it seems like it's going to be trash because you look at the the premise of it you read it on on amazon or something and it's like oh there's a killer stalking sorority girls well but i think it is... the other thing. It's, it's similar things that the, the the female characters in porkies are not what you think they are you know, they're not what you expect them to be. And I think there is something very interesting about that, about Bob Clark as a director. Yeah. Well, I mean, have you guys seen, I guess it would be called Dead of Night in the States. He made it right before Black Christmas. It's an incredible film. Like, honest to God, one of the 100 greatest horror films ever made. It's really, really good. I, I have seen Baby Geniuses. I think he actually made a sequel to Baby Geniuses, if I'm not mistaken. He did. That was his last film. He also made a sequel to Porky's. Um, yeah, I, I've... I've I feel like he is, I feel like I've, as much as I'm sitting here praising Black Christmas um, and what I think is really his touch on the whole thing, I actually haven't seen enough of his work, which is, and I, I was actually surprised because I think for years I thought he was Canadian, but he was actually American and just worked in the Canadian system. You know, Toronto's a great place to film movies. Uh, and I mean, Canada in general, it's a lot cheaper, but anyhow, yeah, love this movie. I believe De Dead of Night is called Death Dream in the States. Uh, I actually have the VHS, uh, which is actually called Dead of Night, and I have the DVD. It's an amazing film, highly recommended, and I also have the um, box set of uh, Perky's, which is really, really good, and I recommend it also. All right, well, on that note, I think we should take a quick break before we come back for our, uh, our five questions, but here is another clip from Black Christmas. Yeah, Nash, what is it? A phone company's on the other line, sir. They say they got a trace on this one. Yeah, let's have it. He says the calls are coming from number six, Belmont Street. For Christ's sakes, Nash, you got it wrong. That's where the calls are going into. That's where they're coming from, too, sir. Yes, sir. Look, 
I can't get through to Jennings. I want you to call that girl. Nash, be calm. Don't tell her that the guy's in the house. Just tell her to put down the phone and walk straight out the front door. I'll be there in five minutes. And Nash, if you blow this, I'll kill you. All right, that was another clip from Black Christmas. We have reached the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. And of course, we always like to start off positive, even though I think this entire podcast has been positive. Who knows if that will change. But uh, Kira, what is your favorite scene from Black Christmas? I mean, it's, 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 I think I mentioned it earlier, but it's got to be uh, the Margot Kidder unicorn kill because I, I think just everything about it from that awesome point where he lifts it up for the first time and you see that kind of just shaft of light across the one eye and the way it comes down and the, this almost kind of impressionistic way that her hand kind of like smacks against the other glass things. I just, I actually think there's just a really beautiful artistry to it. And strangely, it also feels so brutal that she's being killed by her own unicorn statue thing it's i don't know i just i just i love that bit that's the bit that always sticks out in my mind so you completely stole my answer (laughs) and and you explained it you liked it for almost pretty much exactly the same reasons that i like it there's a lot of artistry in that it's just the imagery really really stands out especially when compared to the rest of the movie and yeah there's something poetic about that and having the glass unicorn she's such a hard-edged character she's a very uh confrontational character and you can definitely sense that she's she's trying to stick up for herself but the glass unicorns give a different side of her that i think is interesting that we don't really get to see in the movie but it's still telling a little more of a story and it makes her much more sympathetic when she is killed with those unicorns she was a very likable character anyway i'd watch a whole movie about her i know (laughs) i know Uh, so in the meantime, I'm going to have to come up with a new favorite scene. Uh, but Rick, what is your favorite scene? It's the same scene, but I do have a backup. But just to mention something you guys didn't mention, I love the way it juxtaposes the actual kill with the kids outside singing the Christmas carol. The way the light hits the actual glass unicorn and lights up her face more. Uh, but also, I love the fact that there's a fake out prior because she wakes up screaming in the previous scene and so it it, it it implies that she's being attacked but she's not she just has like a nightmare he was in there though yeah he was yeah she's not actually being attacked or at least not that we know of but so there's a fake out and then we get the murder because i think i think they knew that barb would be the favorite character like everyone would gravitate towards her uh because of the way she's written and also because of her performance and she's like a beautiful beautiful actress so i think having the fake out prior was fantastic but my backup is actually the search party when they go looking for the missing girl and discover another body of another girl that that ended up dying, which we assume might have been Billy who killed this girl, but we're not entirely sure. It had to be, right? Because that was his first phone call. Right, but, but it's it's because earlier in the movie, there's a mention of a missing girl. Uh, yeah. Like, who's not what's-her-face at the start of this film, right? Like someone Claire, else. It's mentioned yeah. at the police station. And then it's also like the way it's shot and the way... Oh my god, I forget the actor's name. The actor that plays the dad, when he walks up to the camera and you get the close-up of his face and he's like traumatized because he thinks he's about to, 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 to... He thinks that they actually found his daughter's dead body and then we learn that it's not actually his daughter's dead body. But the the expression on his face is just... It's like, it's devastating. Yeah, that's definitely a, a good one. I think what his name is... Um, James Edmund, I believe. Um, he's very interesting, a very interesting character throughout the entire movie. He's the kind of character that you expected to come in for one scene and then leave. Just that sort of scene as a smack. Oh, my daughter's not here. 
and then he's out, right? But he he hangs around the rest of the movie, and that, I find that to be very odd. Uh, I think he's I also, gonna... interestingly enough, I think he's the sort of character that could be really, really, like, one note and dull, but is actually kind of like, there's a lot of nuance and sympathy to him as as a character. I I, I find him very endearing. Yeah, he's, t- he's a stuck-up kind of prude at the beginning of it, and you think he's just going to be sort more of an antagonistic character to these sort of free spirits that are in the house. But it turns out that he actually is a very, uh, he, he is a, a more caring guy than that. Yeah. He doesn't isn't just judging them based on that. Um, if I had to go with a backup scene, then I'm going to go with the actual telephone call, trying to trace the telephone call scene, sort of that sequence, really, of uh, of multiple times of trying to to keep Billy on the line and the guy at the phone station running through those that maze of, of machinery, trying to track down where the phone calls are coming from. I think it was a very well done and tense sequence even though i sort of knew what was going to be coming at the end of it just because the reputation of the movie has seeped into pop culture i i knew the call is coming from inside the house it was eventually going to be coming um but i still thought it was all dealt with very well in a similar fashion to how he creates the suspense in the margot kidder kill scene um i think he just he does that even he elongates that and creates a, a, a good amount of suspense Okay, with that out of the way, of course, uh, we always like to ask the opposite question. If there was one thing you could change about Black Christmas, what would it be, Kira? I This is possibly going to be quite controversial, um, but I would change Olivia Hussey. Like, I, I don't think she's bad, but I, I, I don't think she's great. And I wouldn't mind. It's, again, it's like I love Margot Kidder, Kidder in it. And I actually think pretty much the whole cast is great. She always always seems at odds with everybody else and especially i don't know her accent just always feels really off to me and i made fun of it earlier but it's the way she keeps saying peter through the whole thing and it, and again it's like it's it's again it's it, this is a quibble i don't think she's that bad it's just a thing of i i wouldn't have minded seeing somebody else in that lead role here's my question when it comes to that so i i that struck me at first as the, as exactly the same. Like, she's out of her depth here. But at the same time, I thought, would this character have been as endearing played by another actress? Because she feels kind of out of her depth. And her character is kind of out of her depth as well when it comes to an actual killer being in the house. I thought that there were, that perhaps her, her acting style kind of actually contributed to that character's being likable and being a... You know, having the audience want her to be protected and actually survive, especially when there's a lot of, you know, like everybody around there, like you love Margot Kidder and you want her to live, but it's not, it's not like you want her to live because she's such a great person. You want her <laughs> to live because she's super entertaining. Um, and I think the opposite, or not the opposite, but Jess isn't very entertaining, but you want her to live anyway because she seems like a really nice person. And I wonder if, if Olivia Hussey, is a big reason as to why Jess seems like a really nice person. I'm going to agree. Yeah, I would not change her. Well, I think it's interesting because all the behind-the-scenes stuff I've ever read always makes it sound like none of the rest of the cast liked Olivia Hussey very much because she was kind of the outsider and she was a bit weird and she was obsessed with her psychic. Basically, she took the film, apparently, because her psychic told her, you should go make a film in Canada. It'll be very successful. Um and I don't know, I think it, and this this is ironic coming from me because I live in the UK and, you know, my family's Scottish, so it's a, you know, entire family of people with funny accents. But it's, it's, it, I don't know, she just always feels out of place to me. And not in that bad a way, I'm quibbling because I love this movie and I'm just trying to find something. But that sure. would be my honest answer. Okay. 
Ah, that's an interesting one. I don't think we've ever had somebody want to replace the lead actor. There have been a couple of the actors that we wanted to get rid of, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You wanted to get rid of Jimmy Stewart in The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, uh, which I can see it. I wouldn't do it, but I can see it. I mean, I think uh, that's outrageous, but without, that's a conversation No, it's for not, because he's too old for the role. <laughs> it's, it has nothing to do with his performance. He's just way too old for the character that he plays in that movie. Which he is, for sure. And John Wayne is definitely more suited to his own role than Jimmy Stewart is. But Stewart, of course, is just a magnetic actor. Uh, I don't think Olivia Hussey necessarily is. But in this role, she brings a certain sweetness that I think maybe wasn't in the script. And that just sort of helps uh, make her likable. But, um, Rick, what would you change then? And I have a feeling, since you already sort of alluded to it, maybe you and I are on the same level, but we'll see. I don't think so. So what I would change is a, is a line that's spoken about midway through the film in which um, Jess says, because the police officer asked her a question, was Peter ever present when he received the phone call? And she's like, yes, actually, he was here when he received the last phone call. And the reason why I would change that is because now, yes, the audience could pick up on it. Right. Like if you're if you're smart enough, you would pick up on the fact that Peter was there present while a phone when one of the phone calls happened. Right. So therefore, he can't be the killer. But by her realizing that Peter was present when the phone call was made and the phone calls are coming from within the house, why would she actually think he's the killer at the end of the film and actually kill her boyfriend? Because then that just makes her a straight-up killer and a murderer, which she is because she kills someone who's innocent, which I don't have a problem with if she's actually defending herself, but we don't actually see her defending herself. Like, we don't see Peter attacking her. She just straight-up kills the man, but earlier on it's made clear that he's not the killer. So if you remove that one line of dialogue, which would be like removing one minute of the film, I think I wouldn't have a problem with the ending of the film, but I have a huge problem with her killing Peter because that line is included and it's clear that he's not the killer. It's a great line if you're trying to portray the detective as smart. Her response to it should have at least been, I don't know, or I don't remember. It would be fine if it was someone else who said it, right? Not her. Like, she doesn't hear it. Like, the, the detective or her friend says it, but she is not in a know. Or to say, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember or something like that. Right. It's a huge, huge flaw, guys. It's a huge flaw of the movie. Yeah. It, it, it basically, although still at the end, I was still questioning it. And this is my problem. My problem is I have a lot of problems with the very end of this movie. As to what I would do different. I feel like they were sort of rushing things out. Um, I do think it's just very odd. How did Peter know that Jess was in the basement? <laughs> and why would he be sneaking around looking through the windows? Because he... he's a creep, man. He's a... <laughs> I, I don't... Yeah. The whole movie's creeping around. He's hiding behind a tree at one point. He knew she was down there. It, it's kind of a cheat. Because it seemed like he knew she was down there. Which the only person who knew she was down there was the killer. I mean, um, he's so like a dude where you're just kind of like, girl, you gotta like, you gotta get out of there, man. <laughs> That's why there was a theory going around that there's actually two killers, which is why a lot of people think that Wes, uh, not Wes Craven, Kevin Williamson had the idea of having two killers in original screen sure. because of Black Christmas. They just said, no, he is a killer. There's actually two killers, but it's just he never been proven. through a window to get inside he, he, there. He destroys the piano because he didn't feel he played well enough. But what I'm saying is, regardless if he can be a killer or not, it's it's the way she's thinking that bugs me because in her head, she would not think he's a killer because he was there. Unless she actually thinks there's two killers, but that's just stupid. No, I, I, mean, I can, she also I can, I can get on board with this 
I can get on board with this change. I mean, it's not really like I have to say it's it's weirdly not something that bugs me that much, but I I can totally see why it would annoy you. It's it's taking out one minute of the movie, which completely changes the way we look at the ending. Like your change is like huge, right? Like I can see a lot of people pushing back on it because you're you're asking us to replace the main actress. I'm asking for one simple change, but it totally makes the ending better. I, I think you could totally do uh, the Rick cut where you just um, you just you just do it, just do it yourself at home on uh, on premiere, and uh, then you could just watch the movie from that perspective for the rest of your life. <laughs> I think that's a really good change. It's one of the more interesting changes I think we've had on this podcast, just getting rid of one line and how it can really alter an entire, um, the, the, the audience's perception of an entire screenplay. I mean, the dude is creepy. Like, he's hiding behind a tree. He's yes. just a peeping Tom. He destroys the piano. Like, he's just a weird he dude. But that her. doesn't he mean he's a killer. <laughs> yeah. Now, for me, the, my biggest thing is I need something. I need something to change the ending. I cannot have, and I get your point uh, of of all the cops and everybody gathered around being kind of the stupid guys. And hey, we've looks like we've solved this. Congratulations and pats on the back all around. That's a really good point about the ending, about them being sort of dumb and how they do this. But I couldn't. It it kind of ruined her getting potentially killed for me. Like that movie should be sort of a gut, or the ending of that movie should be a gut punch, right? As the telephone rings. But instead, all I could think of is, what? All these guys, like, this just happened, and they all just walk out the door, and they leave one cop outside, and they just they sedate her alone in a house after she's been through murders? It just rang hollow to me. And I feel like there was a way you could have ended it, had a very similar ending, but just tweak things a little bit to give them a reason to leave her alone in that house. Just a I mean better reason. I'm not I totally, I totally get you. I totally get you on a logic basis. I don't know why, but just weirdly, visually, that just works for me. That weird idea of all those kind of like ineffectual dudes just kind of like circling around her and then just leaving her to the killer. I, I know it doesn't actually make any sense narratively, but weirdly, it works for me. Yeah, I can, and I can see that. It, like, because it's a horror film and a slasher film, for me, it works because in these movies, characters do stupid things. Like, they go back to the house. You know, like, there's, this, there's there are the rules that Randy clearly states in Scream. Like, don't go back in the house. Don't do all of the stupid things that characters do in horror films. When the camera does maneuver around the house and it goes from room to room to room, we actually have a clear shot of the bed full of blood. So how did nobody not see the bed covered in blood? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they never checked the attic for the bodies. Like, I mean, obviously, realistically, you'd go through the whole house, though, realistically, and make sure nobody else was there, by the way, because also these cops are assuming that Peter was the only killer, and there's no reason to think that he would be the only killer. You'd go through the whole house to make sure it was safe. I know that that's a realistic thing, and this is a movie. However, it also de detracts from the lieutenant character, because up until this point, he has been very smart. And he has, he's been the one that's sort of like helping them get to this point. It sort of goes back on that because it does not feel, suddenly it doesn't feel thorough. And he had great instincts throughout the movie where he kind of suspected the phone call may have had something to do with this and that maybe we should tap their phone. Whereas another cop might have just disregarded the phone calls. It's not really mad like, ah, yeah, everybody gets prank phone calls. No big deal. Um, but no, he had he had instincts that he followed, and he was very smart, and it led him to nearly uncovering this thing, right? And I just feel like that was such a boneheaded move that it completely takes away from a character that they had built up. It's sort of a betrayal of that character in my mind. But anyway, all right. <laughs> 
Okay, with all that being said, Kira, who do you think is the MVP of Black Christmas? I mean, you know, I'm 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 gonna go past the the obvious answer because I think we've we've alluded to a very obvious answer, and I'm gonna go with Miss Mac because I love Miss Mac. You know, her <laughs> hiding hiding her whiskey bottles. You know, trying to cover. I just love the fact too that she comes in and she's not like the sort of stern den mother. She's clearly someone who has a great time with with the girls and they love her and I don't know she's just like she's just a great energy and I'm always so sad when she gets killed and I also think it's kind of an interesting choice that you have this kind of interesting fun dynamic middle-aged woman um you know in in this movie and she's the second murder victim and it's it's not just a, another co-ed so no I I'm, I'm gonna go with Miss Mac she uh she's a different kind of present than you would normally see in this. She's certainly I think she embodies sort of a lot of the themes that they try to get across as far as the you know how the girls are expected to behave and how girls in general should be expected to behave or had been. Like she kind of bucks that entire system. Which is interesting for for you know a horror movie in 1974. Rick, what about you? Who's your MVP? Well, I'm actually going to go with the entire cast, which includes, of course, uh, Margot Kidder and, yes, Olivia Hussey. I think uh, the cast is what makes this movie work. I think as good of a script as you have, you can have an amazing script, and if you don't have the right cast, that the whole movie can fall apart. Yes, we praise the cinematographer and the camera shots, the POV shots, especially, and the sound design, and Bob Clark is a fantastic director. But I think that this is a type of movie, because it's so character-driven, because the, the characters are so well drawn and they all each have their own unique personality and we get to know a lot about these characters within a short period of time like i really think it's the characters that make the movie work so for me i would just bundle up the entire cast and give them the mvp award you're a cheater <laughs> <laughs> you know what we also didn't talk about and i do not know her name so i apologize but the girl with the glasses, like, she's amazing. And nobody talks she about her. She plays Miss Mac in the remake in 2006. Andrea Martin? Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. Wow. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> no, she's fantastic. All of them are. I like the little connections that you hear right at the beginning, you know, the between Barb and Claire. Like, this idea that they, they don't like each other for some reason for this sort of, one of them is, you know, maybe a little more conservative and the other one's not as far as the, you know, their sexuality and stuff like that. And so there's some an antagonism between the two, these little tiny little backstories. You get a sense of these people being actually people and interacting with each other before the movie started, which is great. Even the cop at the station, who's a complete buffoon, like he's got more character than most characters in slasher films. He's, he's an amazing Sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also, I, I also, I kind of love the guy who plays uh, Claire's boyfriend just because he is the symbol of how Canadian this movie is because he just sounds so Canadian. And then when you meet him, he's playing ice hockey and it just like, it feels, it's something that just feels so endearing about like, ah, yes, this movie is being made in Canada. Yeah, He's also got the greatest fur coat in movies, in horror movies. Yeah, but it's so weird because it's an American director, mostly an American cast. It's shot in, in Toronto, but they try to hide the fact that it's shot in Toronto. But as, as hard as they try to hide the fact that it's shot in Toronto, you can't help but not escape the Canadian feel. Because it does feel like a Canadian movie. Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. 
And the act, there's some Canadian accents that uh, sneak in there. Well, sure. I'm, I'm a big fan of Australian B-movies, and they have a similar kind of thing where they'll try to pretend it's America, but they can't help but, like, the Australianness of it coming through. Oh, man, I love <laughs> Australian horror films. They're so good. Well, I'm going to give my MVP to – it's always tough when you talk about cinematography versus director because the, those two have to work so closely together. Um, but I am going to give it to the cinematographer, even though I think the staging is fantastic in this movie and Bob Clark did an excellent job. Uh, what really worked for me and put this movie above so many other B-movie horror, you know, slasher flicks, is the – the cinematography it was it was unsettling to me so many of the shots in this movie him standing in the closet billy standing in the closet while claire is kind of looking uh everybody's oh, that looking eye, for that eye shot is amazing as well oh yes yeah so many of yes the eye shot through the crack of the door or whatever yeah there's there's so much in this that just sort of jolted me and uh, and made me on edge made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up and starting with that opening shot of him climbing up the lattice I just thought there, there was something abnormal and not like other POV shots, I guess. So nobody's picking the cat? The cat's amazing. <laughs> that stupid cat. Everybody needs to stop looking for that cat. They were so I, concerned I have this that in cat. general. People should stop looking for cats in horror films. It it's never not, goes well. No. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> so... We always have this question about whether or not a movie uh, can pass the Howard Hawks test. And supposedly Howard Hawks once said that a great movie is comprised of three good scenes and no bad ones. So in your mind, Kier, does Black Christmas pass the Howard Hawks test? I mean, there's definitely more than three great scenes. Um, and I don't think I can think of any genuinely bad scenes. Like, I don't think there's scenes that are amazing or there's scenes that are very passable, but there's certainly not a scene where I'm like, oh, that was that was a real bum note or, oh, the film really went down during that bit. I mean, it's actually, it's it's like, it's a pretty breezy watch. Like, it, it's, it doesn't have a lot of the slowness of an awful lot of slasher films where you're kind of like, okay, I've got to endure the first 45 minutes to get like a really good last 30. It's like, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty solid all the way through. Yeah, launches right into it. Um, Rick, I'm not sure if you want to go first, uh, next or last on this one. I mean, my answer is yes. I don't think there's a bad scene, and we've already mentioned about three great scenes, so yeah. My question is whether or not it has three great scenes, I guess. It all depends on how you define a great scene. And I was thinking about this when I was trying to sit, think of my favorite scenes uh, right after watching it. And as I, as I watch these movies, sometimes I'm trying to think of that, but I was pretty absorbed in this, so I had to think about it afterwards. I couldn't pick out that many options, which is why I came with just the one, with this, the barb kill, which I think is a, an absolute fantastic... Well, hold on a second. You just mentioned the opening, which is an amazing scene. I mean, the fact that... I, I, the shot is amazing. I, I, think it's a, I think it's an amazing shot, but I'm not sure that I would qualify it as an amazing scene. Oh, I think it's a great way to open up a film. I hate to be the guy who kind of has to keep coming in and being, but what about Miss Mac? Is But it's like... The bit where she's like looking up, you see the point of view of the hook just waiting and waiting, and then she turns and it flings. You see her feet, and it just gets pulled up. That's that's great. That's great staging. Like I love that bit. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff to like, and again, the craft. Bob, uh, you know, Bob Clark elevates the material, but I'm I was looking for scenes that sort of transcended that, which I think the Barb Kill does. That that goes beyond just having you know elevating B movie material. That to me was. Made, made the what movie. about the fellatio scene, the where she, where she tells the where she 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 
and, and it, it pays off, but it pays off so well at the end. It's like it's great setup and payoff. Yeah, it it it's good dialogue, but I don't know that I would call it a great scene because I can't. It doesn't really have this beginning, middle, and an end to me that 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 encompasses a great scene. Well, then, sir, you and I occupy two very different worlds. <laughs> yeah, in the end, I can't think of... I mean, I could say that the ending was bad, but I don't think it's a bad scene. I just think that they... If they were... I'm starting to see your way of, like, the, the bumbling guys surrounding the, the girl thing, I, and I like that explanation of it. So I'm not going to call the ending a bad scene, even though I still would change it. But I can't think of three great ones, so I can't pass it on that on that criteria. I'm sorry. But, you know, because, like, the thing is, though, is, like, because we're watching this in 2020, and when this movie was released in 1974, the big reveal that the the phone call is coming from within the house would be considered a great scene because it was such a great reveal. And When a Stranger Calls came out in 1979. So, to me, that's also a great scene. Yeah, I did I did mention that one as being my, my next favorite scene. So, that would be my two- but I couldn't I just, come up with the third one. I also just really like the bit, too, where Olivia Hussey is, like, looking up the stairs, and he's like, just like, get out of the house! Just get out of the house! And, you know, because you as the audience are kind of going like, yeah, just get out of the damn house! And so, we I know, know. Her, I, I love that. Yeah, we know her friends are dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but she doesn't know that yet, and that's what makes that so compelling. I do like that he was, Nash was smart enough when she said, my friends are upstairs, to just say, don't worry about them, they're fine. Just walk out the door. <laughs> he did try to do what that detective wanted him to do. He just wasn't very good at it. Um, no, I, that would be my second great scene, but I, I can't really think of a solid third. I think I'd be stretching if I was being honest with myself. So I can't quite pass it for that. Sorry, guys. But it is a very good movie. Um, if not a great one, maybe it doesn't pass Howard Hawks' test. <laughs> um, do you think so our last question is always it, we kind of change the last question occasionally depending on what the movie is sort of alter it to fit the movie but um, is there an audience for Black Christmas going forward and what do you think that audience is like what do you think that audience looks like I mean it, it's interesting because I, I think this a lot about myself is I kind of like you know do I like things that other people like because I like them or do I like them because you know it's it's I don't know it's a weird one I I think I I think it's one of those ones that is very very interesting if you are into this kind of genre I'm not sure like just a kid today who's like never really gotten into horror sits down and watches this I'm not necessarily sure it jumps at them in the same way but I, I don't know it's like you know i i meet plenty of people who think halloween is boring so i just i i don't really know is, is the real answer to it I, I always find that a really difficult question to ponder is like what audiences want or because a lot of time audiences want shit well it's a question that i often struggle with on the podcast because usually my answer is always the same which i feel kind of is boring it's the movies for people who are hardcore movie buffs and who just want to see what most movie buffs consider like one of the greatest horror films ever made even if they don't like it it's a curiosity but the thing about black christmas is it's not the type of movie that a younger audience with a low attention span and who maybe is under the age of like 20 or even 25 might like because i don't know like it, it's like you know you mentioned halloween how people think it's boring and i totally understand why 
uh, like in this movie, there isn't much action. The action that unfolds is really slow pace. The movie itself moves at a slow pace. It takes its time. It's very patient. It's not what people would expect from a slasher film. And I think the thing is, it's like if you grow up and you watch certain slasher films and for you, a slasher film is like fast paced, lots of kills, lots of blood, lots of great special effects. That's what you grew up knowing. So when you watch Black Christmas, it's it makes sense that you don't really like it because it's not what you know. It's not what you're accustomed to seeing. It's not what you grew up liking. You know what I mean? So for me, I watched Black Christmas before it was ever a huge cult hit. So I, it blew me away because it's one of these movies that no one ever heard of that I just thought was amazing. And when you when you when, when no one talks about a movie and you discover a hidden gem, it makes it even more special because you don't have any expectations, right? Like a lot of times I go into a movie and I'm expecting it to be great because everyone says so and so movie or TV show is amazing. And then you sit down and watch it. And because there's so much hype built around it, you're not as impressed. Well, I think that's the interesting thing, too, because um, I would say that one of the reasons I avoided it for a long time is I thought it was going to be kind of like an eating your vegetables movie, like something I was going to watch because I wanted to. It's like it's quaint and it's dull and it's an old fashioned thing that I'm, I'm, I'm watching in order to learn more about where the genre came from. But I think that was what was so pleasant for me is that I actually found it so engaging and dynamic and actually still really funny and really just, um, yeah, no, I mean, and, and the funny thing is by contrast having, cause I saw the remake first and the thing with the remake is it's so brutal and kind of almost nihilistic and mean spirited. And it, it, it already feels like it's aged badly. It feels like it came out in a post saw trying to be really shocking kind of like time period and it, it, whereas like, I still think the thing about Black Christmas is that it's strange, it's surprising how entertaining and quick and witty it is. And it's very simple. Yeah. And I think that's why it's very effective. I think that there's, I think any audience can watch this movie. I think anybody who has the patience to at least sit down and watch a movie and granted those numbers are growing less and less these days. But if you have patience to sit down and watch a movie, I think that this movie can can generally scare anyone. I'm not saying it will because horror is like comedy is often subjective, which is why some people may see Halloween as completely boring uh, as well. While other people's were ter- other people were terrified by it. But um, I think this can unnerve anybody. I consider myself a fairly mainstream film goer, despite a love for movies and a love for watching, you know, some weird stuff. I still think that I have fairly mainstream tastes. Uh, I think. Well, listen, this is a movie you recommend to people who don't like horror films because they don't want to see yes. a lot of blood and guts and gore because this movie doesn't really have a lot of gore or blood. Most of it is off screen, so it's more of a thriller. It's still a horror film, but yeah. it's, it's a horror film for people who don't like horror films. There's not exploitation in this movie, and that includes of the violence. So they I would say it's very atmosphere-based. There's a yes. lot of great atmosphere that's built in it. And that's why I think that it taps into something a little more than just... It doesn't provide shock scares... It's tapping into something deeper, and I think any general audience, I think if people discover this movie, they they will enjoy it. They will be engaged by it, because I, I was engaged by it, and everybody's got modern movie sensibilities now, and, you know, I wasn't born in 1974, <laughs> in 1974, so, like, this movie was made before I was born, and it can still absolutely engage me, and now, granted, yeah, I love movies, but I don't have the same affinity, like, say, Rick, you love horror movies, and you've seen so many of them. I don't have that quite that same affinity for horror movies. I've seen a lot of them, but I, you know, to me, a lot of slasher f- flicks are just trash garbage that I wouldn't go back to. Uh, 
But that's the um, fun of them. That is the fun of, of slashes. It is. is that it, most of them are bad movies. And in the right in the right mood, that can be great. But when I want to sit down and actually be engaged by a movie, I, I often don't turn to those types of movies. Oh, totally. But, but this one, I think, is. It, it works. There are some slasher films that do work really well, and this is one of them. And I think anybody watching this can be engaged by it because it's working on a simple primal level. Well, the one thing I like better about Black Christmas than Halloween is the characters. It has way more characters. The characters are way more interesting. I mean, I love Laurie Strode and Jamie Lee Curtis is incredible, but she's really the only character in that movie that I care about. Yeah, her friends are kind of fun. I mean, the way they all interact with each other is kind of fun, but um, she is designed to be the only character you really care about. Although Donald Pleasance is doctor, too. I, I care about him. I mean, he seems like a smart guy who generally wants to stop the <laughs> serial killer from destroying everything. Um, not like that doctor in the new Halloween movie who is an asshole. Um, yeah, so that's it. I, I think that ultimately people could, will people discover this movie? I don't know. I, I feel like if it, if it gets brought around, sure. I but... think it has been weirdly getting more, I feel like it's, it's cultural cachet has been growing strangely over the last like, like decade like i feel like it's talked about more than it used to be which is good and hopefully more people will be able to discover it uh, if it makes its way onto more streaming services that gives it a better shot anyway it's sticking around because that's going to be how any movie sticks around now is what streaming service are you on are you on a popular one or are you on a niche one if you're on a niche one good luck your movie may die a very slow death even if it was popular when it came out in theaters um, if you're on a big one, you got a shot at, at immortality, but that's kind of the way that it's going to go from now on. Well, the last thing I'm going to say, because we do have to wrap it up. Well, two things. First of all, it's a shame that, uh, Bob Clark couldn't actually make the sequel, uh, because he was killed in a car accident because of a drunk driver. Um, so that happened. And, um, what was the second thing I was going to say? I was going to make a point. Um, now I forget, and it was like important. Anyways, never mind. <laughs> um, all right, so we should probably wrap things up then. Um, that is our discussion of Black Christmas. Uh, Kira, where can we find you online? Is there anything you want to promote here? Yeah, um, uh, my little horror shorts, uh, which did the rounds at uh, various uh, film festivals. Um, was premiered on Alter back in March. So you can, if you go on to YouTube and type in Retch, R-E-T-C-H, and Alter, you can uh, check out my horror work um, and uh, see if you think I know what I'm talking about. Uh, also, hopefully, uh, should be, uh, be part of uh, an anthology horror feature that'll be coming out at some point over the next six months called um, Isolation, which I did a segment for, where all the filmmakers shot in lockdown. Um, otherwise, you can check me out on Instagram at Breaking Point Flicks or go to my website, curiouslyward.com. Very cool. All right. Um, you can't find me online in too many places right now, but after the new year, I think that's going to change. I'm gearing up for some writing. Rick, we've been like having some Slack channel discussions. I'm ready to go back. I'm ready to deliver some hot takes on stuff me too um, and i just remembered what i wanted to say so before i forget again had john carpenter named laurie agnes and michael billy halloween could have been the official sequel to black christmas Ooh. interesting did not think of that that's a great one yeah uh well where can we where can people find the podcast online rick 
everywhere. Uh, check out goombasomp.com for all the links, but we are on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, like you name it, it's everywhere. But once again, all the links on the podcast lives over at goombasomp.com. And uh, yeah, it's like there's too many links for me to mention, but it's all there. Yeah, very good. All right. We're probably going to take a break, I think, for the holidays here, uh, but we will be back with a new podcast starting in the new year. Is this going to be our last one of the year, Rick, or are we doing one more? I believe it is the last one, unless I can maybe convince you to talk about Strange Days. Maybe. No promises. Maybe. We'll see about that. We'll see if the, with how the timing works out. But uh, other than that, we will see you guys next time at some determined point in the future. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you later. Are you the only one in the house? No. Phil and Barbara upstairs asleep. Why? All right. Now I want you to do exactly what I tell you without asking any questions, okay? No questions. Bradford.